If you would like to buy your own copy of The Godfather Part 1 or Part 2, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35 followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. John Lewis is a University Distinguished Professor of Film Studies and University Honours College Eminent Professor at Oregon State University. He has published 13 books, including The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2, for our British Film Institute's Film Classics series. In this episode, we will be discussing the film's revolutionary visual style, the political context of the film, and its unusual production history. Was the film partly funded by the mob? We'll find out. We'll also be talking about the theme of assimilation into white America and the depiction of women in the films. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Wayne Minkham. And I'm your other host, Rebecca Morofsky. Today, we're going to dive into one of the classics of Western cinema. We are speaking to John Lewis, the author of the BFI film classics books on The Godfather and The Godfather 2. Welcome to the show, John. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm actually really excited to record this podcast. Let's get into it. The first line of the movie is, I believe in America. Um, can you talk about that as it relates to the rich thematic through lines of the Godfather trilogy? Well, yeah. I mean, the gangster films really aren't about crime. They're generally about capitalism and they're generally about being part of a a kind of very American way of life, what the Corleones want is to assimilate. And what in the guard, very famous garden scene where Vito is, has abdicated his throne and Michael's already sort of taking over. And he says, you know, I had these great dreams for you, Michael, that you would be Senator Corleone, Governor Corleone. And um, Michael says, well, there just wasn't time. It's, you know, this sort of dream of becoming Americans of Italian descent instead of Italian Americans. So the idea of becoming an American is important, but also the idea of becoming a successful American is important. And the route to that success is, is crime because other routes aren't available. At least to Vito, the immigrant who comes to the U.S. as a child and has dreams of success that are eventually only available through criminal activity. Can you talk about how, for example, the visual style of The Godfather is used to carry this narratives, these themes? In the book, you talk about how, well, you point out how like a lot of like definitely the first Godfather um, is filmed in interiors. There's a lot of, you know, all of the business decisions kind of in their own way theatrically kind of aping like legitimate business meetings so if you could talk more about like expand on that if as it were well yeah i mean this is even more apparent in godfather 2 which is uh ostensibly a movie of meetings it's sort of amazing it's this incredibly entertaining three-hour movie in which kind of nothing happens except people have conversations and often leave unsatisfied, which then leads to something else that happens either off screen or in a different scene. And the first one opens, you know, with the wedding. So you have the wedding outside and then you have a series of business meetings inside. And Godfather 2 doesn't, you know, the first modern scene is Anthony's confirmation party. And, and then you have Anthony Michael's son's confirmation party. And you have all these meetings as well in Michael's office. 
And so there's, I think the challenge in, in the film is to make a crime film that isn't particularly about action and isn't particularly about crime. For me, my reading of the film is that these are gangsters pretending to be businessmen and hoping somewhere along the line that if they pretend hard enough, they'll actually become businessmen. But as Michael discovers, it's not possible. If you go all the way to Godfather 3, he says as much, you know, I try to get out and they pull me back in. I wish I could do a better Pacino, but I... (laughs) I mean, couldn't we all, but I don't think anyone, anyone can go there, even if it shows up as a party trick for some. Yeah. No, I think the reason why this movie has remained relevant over so many years is because not everyone can relate to being in the mafia, but everyone can relate to the sort of political dynamics that underpin a family and the psychological torment that comes with succession and the meaning of doing right by your family, right? And I think Michael as a character carries many of those narratives and themes. Could you talk a little bit about him as a character and and the idea of succession in particular and the TV show that kind of spawned from yeah, that idea? Yeah. <laughs> I was I was thinking about that. It's I don't write about that in the, in either of the books, but you know, the popular TV show Succession is about three children sort of sort of trying to figure out a way how they could inherit the family business and gain the favor of this very difficult father of theirs. It's a different version of the same thing in Godfather, because you have three sons. The daughter, you know, kind of isn't in that. In in the Corleone family, Connie is never inheriting the family business, so she kind of doesn't count. Whereas in Succession, you have two sons and a daughter. And I think people identify with Succession not because we have fathers like like the father in that in that television show, but that we all want to. You know, we have this sort of love-hate relationship with all our siblings and parents and stuff, and we can identify with that. And I do think in in Godfather, there is this sense of trying to go your own way and then maybe not being able to. When I teach the film, I talk to my students. It's a bit of a rambling answer, so sorry about that. But I talk to my students about that they have this, we don't have the challenges that Michael has, certainly not to the scale that he has, but we do make decisions. So at the end of Godfather 1, Kay comes in and she says, you've got to tell me the truth about what you did to Carla. Did you kill Carla? Which we know we did. We watched it. And he lies to it. And he's making a decision. But we all make decisions, you know, family and business, you know, or I say, you know, to college kids, you're going to leave campus and you're going to have to make a decision. And some of you will have a partner here who doesn't want to go where you want to go. And you're going to have to decide. You're going to have to say, well, you know, I'm going to New York anyway. Decided business over family, haven't you? And that's what Michael has to decide. There's this great moment in in Godfather. There's so many great moments. But when um, his dad is in the hospital after the assassination attempt, and he leans over him and he says, I'm with you. And Vito cries. I mean, Brando's such a great actor, and he just, these tears are going down because he didn't, this is the thing he didn't want. He did want something else for Michael, but he can't. But there's this sense that that he's at once disappointing his father, ironically, by gaining his respect because he's the only one who can succeed, Vito. You know, Sonny's crazy and dead, and Fredo is, well, as Vito says, well, Fredo. You know, it's like, that's out of the question. So it's always going to be Michael. Right. I think 
at the, you know, none of us, God forbid, hopefully don't have fathers like uh, Logan Roy in succession or Vito, right? But like, I think even if we can't relate to owning a Disney-like franchise or running a mafia, you know, a mob family, I think we can all relate to the dynamics of disappointing your parents and doing something, trying to go your own way, or also trying to compete with your siblings and vie for your parents' attentions and affections, which is something that I think is like a really tortured and theme that gets played out on in both the movie and the show succession i'm just i think that the godfather has inspired so many movies in this way to just like play out the kind of psychology that's underpinning these really extreme examples of either violence or power right but like thinking more about the ways in which this movie maybe is trying to universalize the experience i know that coppola really kind of sympathized with the sort of history of poor Italians trying to immigrate to America. And in a way, this movie is trying to speak to the assimilation, the experience of assimilating into white America and trying to create a kind of legitimate business with your family. Could you speak a little bit about what the response was like, both from public figures in the mafia, but also even just Italian Americans who had nothing to do with the crime circuit? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the joke that Mafia watched the movie and learned how to behave. There's this guy, Selwyn Rab, R-A-A-B, and he wrote a, a history of the five families in New York. Five families, which are mentioned in first Godfather film, were, were a real thing. Though the Corleones weren't, weren't involved, they're, they're an invention. And in the, uh, the book, they did these, he reports on FBI wiretaps of Mafia figures, and they were, they, they're ta- incessantly talking about the movie, kind of like in Sopranos, where, you know, they watch it and, you know, they sort of talk about going to the mattresses. Apparently, Don Jr., Donald Trump Jr., used that phrase recently to describe uh, the January 6th nonsense. And they were going to go to the mattress. And I thought, oh, God, poor Coppola has to has to be quoted by that gang. Oh, um, God. But look, I mean, we were talking about families. You know, you want to talk about it. A family and trying to please daddy. Um, not the great not first great the, artist they've co-opted, you know? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> so there's that. I think I've wandered off of your question. The mafia angle on it, obviously the film is about the mafia, but the word mafia is not mentioned in the movie. And that was the result. Uh, I write a bit about this in the book. When they went to New York to shoot location scenes, because a lot of the first Godfather and the second Godfather were shot on in Little Italy in real New York streets. And when you shoot on location, you need you need teamsters, you need you need trucks, and you need equipment brought to places. And it's a union film, so every every aspect of the production is going to be covered by union contract. And when they tried to do it in New York, the teamsters basically gave them a one word answer: No, you know, we're not going to do it. Which meant they couldn't shoot on location, which was you know kind of unthinkable. So they went to New York to negotiate, it turned out, with the uh, an Italian anti-defamation league. I, f- I forget the exact name of it. And actually, the son of a very powerful gangster in New York, Joe Colombo, was on the board that they were negotiating with. And um, leaving aside the fact that the Teamsters' relationship with the mafia was complicated, and 
I should add, as an addendum, my father was a Teamster. So mm. I know a bit about this. And the Teamsters did right by my dad. So I have nothing bad. I will, I will say on the record, nothing bad about the Teamsters. But they wouldn't do anything until, until the Italian Anti-Defamation League cleared the production. So Al Ruddy traveled to New York to negotiate with these people. And eventually, the deal he struck was that the word mafia wouldn't come up in the movie. So wow. it doesn't. Casa Nostra, neither. I mean, in the second film, it does, but not in the first film. I definitely want to get into like the kind of shady production history of this movie. But yeah. I'm just wondering, when it, when it came out, did people in the mob say, wow, this like really captures what it's like? And... I mean, on the flip side of that, were there a lot of Italian-Americans who were not so pleased to have their identity conflated with crime? Well, that was the fear, you know, that must we have yet another movie like Scarface? You know, that's Scarface 1932, which sort of year before that, uh, Little Caesar. So you have two movies that sort of were about Italian gangsters and that becomes a worrying trend. So that was the worry. But there's nothing to worry about in this movie. I mean, is there a it's almost an advertisement for the for the mafia. They're they're a lovely. <laughs> they do terrible things, but they're a lovely family. And Vito, you know, he's he's that drug thing. He won't get involved in the drug thing because it's bad. It's bad. Prostitution and gambling are, in his view, victimless crimes. That's in both cases uncomplicated view of complicated things. But still, and he's you know he loves his children. He loves his wife and. He seems to have a sense of fairness that's kind of admirable. So yeah, I don't think they have anything to complain about in the movie. So you've talked about it a little bit already, but just thinking about how Coppola kind of approaches the women characters in this movie. Oh, thinking yeah, yeah. Of, yeah, yeah, just thinking let me, of... Let me oh, interrupt yeah, you for a second, because yeah. I did want to say that a lot has been made recently of the fact that like the mafia had somebody on the set. There's a television show called The Offer that sort of... Oh, yeah, that's quite recent. It's about yeah, the, make, and the I, making I, I'm of... I'm sort yeah. of avoiding it because Peter Bart, who is the editor of... was the editor of Variety magazine, but was the vice president of Paramount when the film was made. He's Robert Evans' right-hand man. Evans since passed. So Bart's the sort of last living sort of executive to remember what really happened on the set. And he says that shows utter nonsense. I'm kind of, I mean, even in a practical way, it's, it seems like it must be utter nonsense. If you've ever been on a movie set, especially a movie of the scale, a production of the scale that, that Godfather was, you'd have absolutely no idea what's going on. So if you were there to make sure they weren't doing something, you would not be, a, unless you were a cinematographer, you'd have no idea, you know, unless you were a professional. So the idea, because this is a myth about about Godfather, that part of the deal with the Anti-Defamation League was that would be somebody on the set. Maybe there was, but I can't imagine they were particularly effective. Because what happens on a movie set and then what you end up seeing on screen is is so vastly different. There's just so much waiting around on a movie set. You know, I can't even imagine paying attention after a while if you're not involved. And then, you know, the end product was, was good. But I just wanted to get that in because it sort of bothers me, this sort of notion that Coppola had some mafia guy, you know, he'd have to look over his shoulder to make sure what he was doing was okay. That's, that can't possibly be true. No, no, no. It's important to just establish that as a fact. It's interesting yeah. to, when thinking about how he actually came up with this story, but 
Yeah, I was now to the women. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit more about how Coppola kind of portrays women in both of these films in relation to the themes of assimilation, or you know, just the family, what have you. I think it's it, if you take the two films together, Godfather One and Godfather Two. I think this works a little better. So you have Kay and Connie. So Connie, at the end of the first film, she's a battered wife in the film. And it's a pretty graphic scene where Carlo, you know, beats her up on screen. And then, and then her brother avenges the assault. And then Carlo gives information to Barzini and, or to Taglia, you know, one of the rivals. And they assassinate Sonny um, at the toll booth headed to Jones Beach, which I grew up in New York. And I do remember me do too. remember that place? Yeah. So where'd you grow up? In, yeah, I grew up in Merrick, Long Island. Oh, nice. Yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn. And yeah. oh, at, yeah, yeah, Cow Gardens. My my uncle lived on Albemarle Road and oh. Ocean Parkway. I don't know what neighborhood that is anymore, but that's uh, like Ditmas Park, and I kind of lived. <laughs> this is an aside, but yeah, I lived there. Yeah. But actually, Carroll Gardens, where I grew up in Brooklyn, is it used to be very like Italian American, and like people used to joke about it being run kind of by the mafia. Um, so it has well, its own mafia history. Then it was uh, as long as your interests didn't matter to them. It was a very safe place to live. Oh, so. totally. My mom was always like, "Oh, we don't owe them money. It's fine." Yeah, yeah, that's the key. Vito has this great line to Solozo when Solozo was planning his drug empire. And Vito says, you know, as long as your business doesn't interfere with mine. And it's this beautiful threat. He's basically threatening Solozo. As long as what you're doing doesn't matter to me, good luck. (laughs) Uh, But of course, then it's the implied, but if it does, we're going to have a problem. Anyway, so Connie comes in at the very end of the Godfather one, because both women come in at the end. They don't really seem to have that much to do. I mean, Kay has a romantic relation with Michael, then she disappears, Michael meets somebody else, then she's killed, he comes back, he gets her. It's that really weird courtship scene with Kay where he goes to, what, New England, wherever she's teaching, and Michael's followed by bodyguards as he tries to convince her to get together again. And she does. She says yes, which is pretty baffling. And so Godfather 1 ends with Connie coming in and calling Michael a cold-hearted bastard and she's sort of punching him because, of course, he killed her, her husband. I mean, they're not stupid. And he dismisses her. He says, oh, she's hysterical. And then Kay comes in and the movie ends with this, which, you know, is interesting. And, you know, she says, tell me the truth. And he says, don't ask me about my business. She says, tell me the truth. And he lies. And... Uh, she leaves and she's standing at the door and we see Clemenza kiss his ring and then the door closes on Kay. So certainly to Coppola, he's thinking these two women are very important because he doesn't end the movie, which would have been actually a very effective ending of the movie with Michael on the steps of the church after the baptism. And he's one of his soldiers whispers in his ear, you've won. And Michael, as Pacino's so great in this movie, he just sort of looks over to the side and kind of doesn't even smile. He's just one. He's now the most mm-hmm. powerful man in, in New York. And, and it's like, okay. But the film does end with the two women. Yeah. And the film ends with the door closing on Kay's face. The novel ends also with Kay, but in a church lighting candles for Michael's sins. And, and Coppola shot that. And... Robert Evans, I mean, he and Evans 
never really reconciled during Evan's lifetime. But I think even Coppola admits that on Evan's advice, he cut that last scene because it, it goes someplace else. But again, it's the women. I mean, that to Puzo, who wrote the scene, and, and to Coppola as well when he, when he shot it, that he felt like this, this is a family, family story and that ultimately it, it all does come down to them as part of the family. And Godfather, too, gets way more complicated. Kay aborts a child and says, you know, this Sicilian thing has to end, that amazing scene. And she disappears for like, you know, an hour of the movie. Uh, and, and Connie comes back and she tries to put the family back together. She says, oh, you know, can't you reconcile with Fredo? And I'm back and I'm here to help you. And in Godfather 3, she becomes actually a player in the, in the family business. So I do think it's easy to sort of dismiss them as not part of the sort of gangster story, but I don't think that's the story Coppola's telling. He told Paramount when he agreed to do the film that it's not a crime film, it's, it's a family melodrama. And it maybe takes him a while to get to how important the women are, but they're very important in Godfather 2. And I think they're important in Godfather 1 because they, they, in a way, arrive at the end to sort of tell us what the whole story meant. Um, yeah, you don't bookend a movie with something random, right? Like yeah. with something that's not intentional. And I, I ended up, I watched this movie when I was way too young. I don't, I don't remember when, but I, I think my first memory of this movie actually, like the one thing that I could think, remember from it until I watched it as an adult was that the scene of having the door closed on Diane Keaton's face. That's like, it's just such a, it's a thing that is burned into a lot of our memories, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, Molly Haskell, who's this legendary film historian, she wrote From Reverence to Rape, which was in a way a feminist film, the first big feminist film history. And she doesn't have much use for Kay. She calls her like simpering and stuff. And I I think that's a little narrow. I mean, she didn't have the benefit of seeing Kay in Godfather 3, which is also more complicated. But I think, you know, in, in some ways, Connie leaves the family in Godfather 2, and Michael rejects her. She's out sort of, in a way, just having relationships with men. She's just, I'm a wealthy woman, and I can do what I want. And she does that. And then she, on her own, decides to come back. And she, on her own, decides that she wants to become part of the family. And I think that's a lot of agency. She makes all the decisions for herself. She doesn't listen to Michael because he says, you know, this is what I want you to do. <laughs> she just disregards him. So I don't think it's about this sort of, you know, affirming patriarchy. I think she she has to leave the film in order to, to do what she has to do. Maybe there's a Godfather 4 and it's Connie's story. You know, no, Nobody's asking for that, I guess. That Made by be- Sofia Coppola. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, that would be awesome. That would be really fucking cool. <laughs> I think I, I know. I think we've hit on a marketing um, bonanza here. <laughs> if only anybody would listen to us. Um, well, the estate has yeah, that would actually be really and, cool. Yeah, the estate has, he does want to go. Go ahead, sir. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking that the estate was settled a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Where I think Paramount do have the rights to make further films if they want to, but that would be rather daunting, I think. So perhaps that's why it's not been furthered. Yeah, I mean, Coppola didn't even want to make two. He tried really hard not to, and and it was uh, George Lucas told him for Godfather One if you because he didn't want to do that one either. He said, "Well, if you make this movie, you'll never have to make another commercial film again," which was very appealing to Coppola. Not exactly true, but Godfather Two, he got 
he basically was able to negotiate everything. You know, he went in and talked to Charlie Bludorn, who was running Gulf and Western, which ran Paramount. He said, well, these are my demands. And he said things that he thought were just completely outrageous. Like, I don't want Robert Evans anywhere near this production. And he's head of production at Paramount. You know, I don't want this. And I want a million dollars, which in those days was kind of outrageous. And they said, sure, (laughs) fine. And then he wanted Scorsese to direct it. And Scorsese had just made Mean Streets, which is a great movie, but very, very different than what Coppola ended up making, but also very different than the way Coppola makes movies. So he was sort of backed into it. And then he had this, when they kicked Brando off the film after Brando refused to accept the Oscar in 73 for Godfather, he created this very strange formula for Godfather 2 where he'd have these he would focus on Michael and Vito basically at the same age most of the time. Uh, so two very different time frames, and then he'd dissolve one into the other and then back again and tell these parallel stories. And he figured, well, Paramount will never buy that. They'll kick me off the film. And Paramount said, okay, sure, that sounds good. So yeah, Godfather 4, I wonder. I don't know. I mean, Sophia Coppola doesn't need money, so she wouldn't do it for that. Um, but maybe. I don't know It'd who would pay. Yeah, I don't know who I think would, it would like, be really interesting. Connie. You know, if he focused on them as younger women, you'd have to find. I don't think it would be hard. I think you'd, plenty of people would want that role. Anyway, I don't think Paramount's listening <laughs> to us, which is too bad because I think this would be a good film. Are we talking about like sort of wider political context of this film, or and of you know the era in general that Godfather One and Two were being made in? Um, can you talk a little bit about, yeah, like the sort of like the contextual, the political context uh, of that era? Yeah, I mean, I I saw Godfather in, in 72 when it opened. I was 17. And the line that stuck with me then was when he's walking with Kay and he's, he's rekindling their relationship, trying to convince her to marry him. And he, he looks ever the gangsters, you know, he's got the hat and the trench coat and stuff. He's been to Sicily and back, and now he's, he's ready to, to take over. And he needs a woman by his side, so he goes and gets Kay. And he says, you know, the Corleones will be legitimate in five years, he says. And she says, oh, you know, I've heard this before. And then he says, well, my father's no different than any other businessman. And she says something to the effect, you know, of course he is. And then he says, well, you know, he's like any senator or whatever. And she says, oh, senators and presidents don't be naive, Michael. Senators and presidents don't send people off to be killed. And he says, oh, come on now. You know, who's being naive? Now, that scene is set post-World War II. So it's like late 40s or early 50s. In 1972, Vietnam's still happening. And the idea of presidents and senators sending kids off to get killed was a political context for a film that has nothing to do with Vietnam, but it, it was a political context that was unmissable to this 17-year-old boy a year away from draft age. I mean, I was going off to college and hoping that mattered, but might not have. And I was the last draft year and aside. So, I mean, this was a context that for most young American men would have been unmissable, that line about, about sending kids off to die. Godfather 2 comes two years later, but wow, a lot happens. You know, Vietnam is pretty much cycling down, but Watergate's happened in the meantime. And when Michael says to Geary at the very beginning of Godfather 2, we're part of the same hypocrisy, you and I, and Geary disregards it as ridiculous. 
yeah, most Americans are saying, of course you are. You know, politicians are gangsters. Look at Nixon, for Christ's sake. So I do think they were, in a way, not obvious political context. But if you go back to the actual historical moment these films came out, they resonated with that historical moment. This cycles back, I think, also to the women characters in interesting ways, because, you know, we're talking about the height of women's lib, 1972 to 1974 when the two films happen. And here we have these women characters and what then do we do with them given that context? And I do think that's an interesting way of looking at what the movies meant in the 70s. What they mean today maybe is a little different. 